Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 18th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Patients being treated in the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan are being put at risk because the hospital is not equipped to care for them. The medical expertise is to close the emergency department urgently and reconfigure the hospital from a Model 3 hospital to a Model 2 hospital. We've had much discussion about this since the Medical Independent published minutes from a meeting of the HSE Executive Board at the end of last month on this programme. That meeting took place on the 14th of March and in order to improve patient outcomes, the HSE sought then to have ambulances bypass the hospital with immediate effect. This morning is our first chance uh, to speak uh, to the Minister for Justice, who's a local Finnegale TD in Mead East, Helen McEntee, about this. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Minister, do you accept the medical expertise and are you willing to act to protect patient safety? Well, firstly, Michael, I, I've never questioned um, any of our clinicians or doctors or, or any of the anything that they've said um, to us in recent years. Um, obviously, you'll appreciate this is a meeting that I wasn't at, and, and obviously the article refers to minutes of a conversation that I wasn't part of. But for the last, I would say, I suppose I'm a TD nine years, and, and well before that, my own dad involved in this issue with many others. For the last number of years, we have been told that Navin A&E needs to close, that it's not safe. We know, of course, that there are already bypass mechanisms that have been put in place for certain procedures. So if you have certain types of emergencies, you don't go to Navin, you go to Beaumont, you go to other hospitals. But what we are being told now is that the A&E needs to close, that it's not safe. And yet for the past number of years, we have been asking questions. Well, if that is the case, what is the plan here? How do we improve our services? And I mean, I, I say this, you, you know, you said at the outset, I'm a TD for me, but I'm also a resident. And my home is right in the middle of an equidistant to Naval Hospital and Drogheda Hospital. And what I want to know at the end of the day is if my family, my son, me or my husband need care, will we get the get best care possible? And so when we talk about needing to change services, we need to see as representatives, well, how are we going to improve the services? How do we have a better service in need? 
and you know with all due respect the small hospitals framework that was published in 2013 it would have been written long before then obviously the, the work done before then it's over 10 years old our population has increased significantly so I believe we need to be talking about increasing our services improving our services how do we make it better and none of those questions have been answered we've been asking them for many years mm. and none of them have been answered so I, I don't for a second doubt our clinicians and our doctors, I don't for a second doubt that there needs to be changes. But the questions that we would ask is why don't we increase the services? Why can't we why can't we make changes but make sure that, that there are improvements in services and that we increase capacity based on the very real fact that our population has increased significantly and so I believe that we need more services, not less in our county. I'm very surprised Minister that you say you don't really know much about what happened at this meeting. You weren't at it and that's fair enough. Uh, The meeting took place as I said on the 14th of March uh, but this article in the Medical Independent was published on the 28th of April uh, which is three weeks ago tomorrow. Uh, it quotes senior figures like Paul Reed, the CEO of the HSE, and to the chief clinical officer, Dr. Colm Henry, who seemed to be making a, a lot of uh, the arguments for downgrading the hospital, if uh, that's how you care to put it. Uh, and uh, I would imagine uh, that you were aware of this article. I, I know that you were aware of it in, in the last couple of weeks, uh, but three weeks on from its publication and this very strong view coming from people who have medical expertise uh, it it is a little bit surprising uh, if not hard to believe uh, that uh, you haven't been briefed on this did you not ask about it Minister? So we are due to have a meeting uh, and this is what we have been looking for and and you probably know yourself Oh I know and and the the HSE executive board said get on with it uh, in the middle of March Uh, they've written to Stephen Donnelly asking him to get on with it according to the Medical Independent but when the minutes of this meeting came out Minister did you not ask about it? I, I have asked many times because what's in the article is actually not new. I, I mean, I've read the article, I've, I've read what's written in it. There were meetings last summer where a lot of the same things were said at the time. Even though I was on maternity leave, I would have engaged with my colleagues on this and asked the same questions. Well, there is one thing very significant, and one thing very significant and new in it. I think, Minister, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because it seems that the HSE board were saying that they'd been told that you couldn't close the emergency department in. Navin unless you took a number of other steps and they say that all of that is in place now. They've taken those steps and they're ready to go and it's well over time. And if that is the case then we need to see it and I go back to my original point. We have been asking these questions for years. I attended a meeting and at this stage I'm not actually even sure when it was potentially five or six years ago where myself and Minister English asked all of these questions of the HSE. What are the measures that you would put in place? How do we increase capacity? How do you deal with our ambulance services? How do you deal with all of these things? And we have never seen all of this clearly in terms of what would happen and how would our services improve overall? Because this this is what this is about. This is about a better service for the people of Mead and indeed surrounding areas as well. I mean, the report or the, the, the article says that the Oireachtas members have asked questions and they're ready to come back to us. And we have, myself and Minister English sat down and put in 39 questions ourselves. I know other Oireachtas members. A lot of the questions we've been asking for many years and we have yet to see them. So we are waiting for a meeting to, to be set up. But this Minister, meeting will include not just Oireachtas members, but also all of the clinicians, the HSC, media will be invited to make sure this is as transparent as possible. But I mean, we've had meetings in the past. I've had conversations. I've picked up the phone. I've spoken to people. And we have yet to be presented 
with all of these answers and, and that's what we're waiting for. So, you mm. know, I, I have, of course, followed up on this article. I have spoken to people. I have spoken have to you, Minister Donnelly on okay. it many times. He gave us a commitment have last you sp- year have you spoken that to nothing Minister would Don- change. Have you spoken to Minister Donnelly about the minutes of this meeting and if he has received a letter from the HSE Executive Board asking him to get on with it, if you'll forgive me for putting it that way? I, I have, yes. Uh, but Minister Donnelly was given the same information last year and we asked Minister Donnelly to please sit down with us with all of the experts, with all of the medical teams and I appreciate there were a number of meetings that had to change and and were rescheduled and and that's the nature of the work that we're in. Mm. Meetings don't always happen but we have yet to get that information so I am not doubting what has been said but if you are to close a service where a population has increased to the level that it has in County Mead without giving us as public representatives who represent not just their own families but everybody else in the county yeah. without giving us a clear indication. I mean, I, yeah, I well, you wouldn't be that our, our capacity has increased in Drogheda but that has actually only stood still because of the fact that our population has increased. So mm. where do these people go? Where are the services? Where is the investment? That is what I want to see. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be I, closing I the service. As you know, you'd be doing what happened in the other 12 hospitals. You'd be reconfiguring the services. So you take emergency out of Navan and uh, you'd have minor injuries come from Drogheda or from Blanchardstown to Navan instead of being seen there. Uh, and you'd have a, a two-way street where patients would be uh, going in different directions to the ones that they go at the moment. And I think that is what has happened quite successfully elsewhere. Uh, but uh, why is this down to politicians. Why is the HSE not able to act independently on this? If the HSE, with their medical expertise, believe patients are at risk, why are politicians blocking them from protecting patient safety? I mean, is it not a little bit like the Minister for Justice, namely yourself in this case, deciding to allocate 2,000 guards to County Mead all of a sudden overnight? So this is anything but political. Um, and I would go back to the fact that, yes, there have been changes in other hospitals. It has worked really well in counties and in jurisdictions and hospital groups where there has been engagement, where they have put plans in place prior to any changes mm. and where they have invested in resources. It has also not worked very well in other areas where they haven't put the resources in place and where it's taken years mm. and years to actually rectify that. And that is my concern here. So it's worked very well where they've actually put the resources in. They've spoken to people. It's been led by medical teams where they've done all of the talking. They've engaged with not just public representatives, but you, Michael, or or your equivalent in other counties and Mm. other people. It's worked really well. I know, but what what about the the day-to-day operation of things like this? Padre Tobin was on this programme a a few weeks ago saying Minister McEntee has under-resourced policing in County Mead and she could very easily give so many guards to the county because there's so few and so on and so forth and basically I said to him, would you ever get off the stage you know that's not a, an issue for the minister it's an issue for the guard commissioner uh, which I think you'll agree with and I think that would be the response we'd expect from you if we said to you minister why don't you bring more guards to your own county and everybody listening would agree that it would be wrong that a minister could favour the place they come from in order to garner political support and be re-elected and so on and bring support for their party that's bad politics if it works that way is it not the same with health services should it not be left to the HSE the independent health authority to make these decisions and if the medical expertise is saying Navin is not safe should Navin not close if, if I could turn that argument on its head slightly I mean this is not for me I don't have a medical background I, I shouldn't be deciding what happens however 
if nine years ago or seven years ago I asked questions and very legitimate concerns and questions of the HSC as to how this will change, what the service will look like and how it will be a better service and have not received those yes. I, I believe that I'm entitled when I represent the people that I represent to be shown clearly how this is going to be a better service. That is all I care about. This is not politics. I'm not out marching. I have no interest in doing anything of the sort. I want to sit down with people and talk this through and understand how this is going to be a better service. Because while we're being told it's not safe, and I, you know, there are elements of, well, if you close this and send everybody to that's currently using it to Drogheda, that's not safe either. And we heard that from people in that hospital because they are at capacity. So let's look at this in a bigger picture, not just... Uh, the Ireland East Hospital Group, it's the other groups as well that it impacts. And that has never happened. Okay. That's, that's all we are simply asking but for. You're, you're, I'm, I'm not trying to dictate okay. what medical experts should or shouldn't do. No, but Minister, you're, asking questions. You're, you're saying this in the context of medical experts telling you that there's high risks in treating patients uh, through the emergency department and consequently the ICU in Our Ladies Hospital in Navan. And they said that there were some near misses, some significant incidents, as they put it, in December. And they are doing their job, but the HSE also has a job to do here in making sure that the bigger picture is looked at, that if you close this, where is the capacity elsewhere, and making sure that there are not risks elsewhere. And that is simply all that I want to know. But I mean, I go back to my point about the fact that we have increased our population. Should we not be potentially looking at the small hospital framework, looking at Mm. Navin and building it up well, increasing that, the services, that go- increasing the capacity there. That's that, that a really goes, valid question. That goes point, back a, a decade, doesn't it? Uh, the arguments that were made in a, an independent consultancy report which cost millions of euro to locate a new regional hospital in Navan. Everything was there. The population, the population growth, the demographics, uh, allegedly uh, the transport infrastructure because they were expecting that there would be a train running into Navan uh, I think by the end of the last decade. And they made a million and one arguments for choosing Navan and they chose Navin, uh, but that uh, ended up on a shelf, millions wasted, uh, and here we are now, Navin uh, appears uh, that it needs to be downgraded, uh, but I think that's probably uh, the situation when it comes uh, to the politics of health, is it not? You know, look, th- this is not a political issue, it, it really isn't for me, this is about the best service that we can provide in our county and surrounding counties, that's all I care about as I said, I use this hospital, my family does Drogheda as well, where you know most people in need will either go to one or the other or up to the matter or, you know, the, the counties in North, the, the hospitals in North Dublin. This is about making sure we have the best service possible. And that conversation that we read in the article about that meeting does not talk about anything else other than Our Lady of, or, or, or does not talk about anything other than Navan. But we are asking, what about the capacity elsewhere? What about all of the other resources that will potentially be needed elsewhere? Uh, and while, you know, I, I again stress, while I appreciate we've seen an increase in capacity in Drogheda, that has only allowed the hospital to stand still because of our increase in population, not just in Meath, but in Louth and the surrounding areas as well. Okay. So, I, I, you know, I, I take this very seriously. This is, this is a massive issue for people. This is people's health we're talking about. This is not about playing politics. This is about getting answers to questions that we've been asking for for years and we still haven't had them. And I think in order to be able to progress whatever we have to progress here in changing, in improving, in making sure we have better services, we need to have the answers. And and I say we, people living in Meath, all of us, yourself, everybody, I think we should have these answers 
before there's any any changes or before anything happens. Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning on the programme. Uh, that's the Minister for Justice, Fine Gael TD, and me, these, Helen McEntee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the British government has undoubtedly, you know, has brought forward uh, legislation which it says will deal with legacy issues from the Troubles. It is clear that the current system for dealing with the legacy of the Troubles is not working. The Police Service of Northern Ireland are currently considering almost 1,200 cases, which represents just a fraction of the 3,500 deaths and wider cases. These would have taken over 20 years to investigate. More than two-thirds of Troubles-related deaths occurred over 40 years ago, and it is increasingly difficult for the courts to provide families with the answers they are seeking. That is why I am today laying before this House and publishing a paper that proposes a series of measures to address the legacy of the past in Northern Ireland. That's the Northern Secretary, Brandon Lewis, apparently explaining the logic of the British government. In my view, as I said today earlier at the um, commemoration for the um, remembrance ceremony for the um, Dublin Monaghan bombings, uh, 48th anniversary uh, of the worst atrocity, uh, of, of, of that time. The Stormont House Agreement remains the agreed position of the two governments and all of the political parties. This unilateral departure by the United Kingdom uh, is not welcome. Uh, and I've made it consistently clear to the British Prime Minister uh, on an ongoing basis that unilateralism does not work in respect of the full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. People may have issues, uh, but I don't believe any se- serious effort was made or has been made to implement Stormont House um, at all. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin was reacting in the Dáil yesterday to the introduction in the British Parliament of the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill. There was discussions between the British Irish government in the context of the Intergovernmental uh, Council. Uh, I think it's regrettable uh, that this move again has been made, which would appear to be um, in, in, in the context of domestic uh, party political agenda uh, as opposed to the broader issues. Uh, I don't underestimate the challenges, to be fair, all around, but the victims are very, very clear when, when, when you meet the victims and there's different victims' organisations respective different uh, atrocities. They are very clear. They want no amnesty. Uh, they want full accountability. They want people brought before the courts if possible and they want people yeah. prosecuted. And, the time, and that's the least they deserve. Let's speak uh, to the victim's representative, Mark Thompson, who is the CEO of Relatives for Justice. A a very good morning to you, Mark, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Do you believe that the Taoiseach articulated your view and the view of the people that you represent? We most certainly did. Uh, And he rightly outlined the agreement that the British had made with Stormont House uh, back in 2014 and was then refused to implement They've shown bad faith. They've undermined that agreement and then they've acted unilaterally. And I think you have to understand the context in which the British are operating. The British government, I suppose, have been fighting families tooth and nail in the courts for the past two decades. The Good Friday Agreement, Michael, provided the Human Rights Act, which was the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. That's for the first time gives families agency within the courts to use the law. Prior to that, there's been impunity and anonymity, particularly regarding state murders or murders with involving coercion and the use of agents. And so the families using law and using the courts began to unlock and unpack 
And then what the British began to do was introduce public interest immunity certificates, gagging orders, national security clauses, and they locked down courts and public records, and they began a fight back to stop uh, any litigation. And ultimately what they've now done is they've brought in an amnesty. And when Brandon Lewis gets up and says, the system isn't working, well, it isn't working because he has been building barricades around it. He is the system. Yeah, Yeah. and we were told that it wouldn't be a blanket amnesty. Indeed, uh, I think it's right to say that if people are not deemed to have earned their immunity, they can still be prosecuted. But it's very easy, it would appear, on the other hand, to be deemed to have earned your immunity because, as I understand it uh, from the Irish Times today, the document states that immunity must be granted if an individual gives an account judged to be true to the best of of their knowledge and belief. So in other words, you go up and you say, I shot someone in the head or I set off a bomb or I uh, shot somebody uh, illegally as a member of the security forces or I gave information to somebody or whatever. Once you say that, uh, well, then you're entitled to immunity. Well, yes, and there are some grey areas on this. They're saying that if you have a previous troubles-related conviction, then you're not eligible to uh, be indemnified through an amnesty. Um, but in reality, who's going to come forward, Michael? Because it's not as if they're sitting on files relating to things that were done 20, 30, 40 years ago. They have prosecuted all non-state actors, with exception of their agents. And the really reality of this Tory bill was a commitment given in their manifesto pledge that they would protect veterans, a handful of veterans that made a lot of noise, former military people themselves at signatory backbenches, and they, they have been the tail that is wagging the dog in this issue, and the Tories have pushed through and, and dealt with that. But really what it is about is bringing down the lid on state atrocities. The T-shirt yesterday went along to the Dublin Monaghan uh, commemoration of those horrific bombs that killed 33 people, and an onborn child there as well. And in the context of that, you know, an Arachnus Committee determined that that was British state-sponsored terrorism, there was collusion at the heart of it, and the UK refused to provide all the documents to the Bayern Inquiry itself, and that's the microcosm of what you're trying to do with. Mm. We have a state that is locking down and, and, and keeping the lid on its activities during the course of the conflict, and this is also about wider reputational damage, but it's been condemned by the United Nations, the European Court, the US Senate, the US Congress, and all the political parties in Britain, by the Tories, all the political parties in this island, including uh, the, the Irish government. And so what we need to do is practice that harness and harness that, 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 that energy and, and a derail this, because this shouldn't be allowed. We're coming out of a conflict and building, trying to build post-conflict democratic procedures that uphold the rule of law and human rights and respect it. This does the very opposite. It's anti-rule of law, it's anti-human rights, anti-democratic, and it's anti-victim. This is not victim-centred, Michael. Mm. Perpetrator-centred and perpetrator-led, and particularly in the interest of state actors. Is it illegal? Well, that'll be determined. We're doing a meeting this afternoon with some barristers. Um, there's already been a case taken to say it's unconstitutional, and it'll be going to the UK Supreme Court. It's been mm. lodged there. But I do think it contravenes international law around Article 2. Article 2 sets out clearly not only should there be robust independent criminal investigations, there should be accountability and where evidence exists, prosecution. So indemnifying people um, doesn't really work and it will be challenged. Listen, this has been tried in Spain and Chile and elsewhere and it comes 
But what about the Stormont House Agreement? Uh, 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 The Taoiseach said yesterday that it was in breach of that uh, agreement. Uh, Surely that's an internationally recognised agreement too? It is an internationally recognised agreement, and that's the basis of the unconstitutionality challenge by one of the families of members of Relatives for Justice. They're saying that there needs to be a preemptive decision made by the UK Supreme Court because this flouts international and domestic law. Taoiseach's right, the Sormont House was a major compromise, but at the heart of it, it had a human rights compliant investigative process. This does not have that. Under reviews, the British government in the document talk about investigations by a commissioner. There is no proper Article 2 full police powers compliant investigative process that will robustly independently deal with this and keep families at the heart of it. This is essentially a shutting down and a closing down of everything. Mm. Can you imagine post-conflict in any democratic society you shut down the civil uh, cases taken to court, you shut down inquests, and you shut down actual investigations? This would be a king in Britain to send their families at the Grenfell, uh, the Grenfell fire. Do you know what? We're mm. going to indemnify the builders if they're liable. We're going to indemnify everybody. And we're not going to have anything. And you just need to move on. Okay. This is not... Okay, so they've broken an, an agreement um, with the Irish government, but also uh, one that all of uh, the political parties in Northern Ireland are signatories to uh, the Stormont House uh, Agreement. Uh, and in the context of legacy issues, um, could it be argued that this is an addendum that the Stormont House Agreement uh, would be an addendum to the Good Friday Agreement? And has it any consequence for the Good Friday Agreement? Well, it does have a consequence for the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is predicated on the Human Rights Act, which is the European Convention of Human Rights and the Domestic Legislation. And they are now stopping that from taking place by closing down the courts. The inquests are based on the Human Rights Act. The civil cases are around the Human Rights Act. The police ombudsman is operating around the Human Rights Act. They should be interfering with it. And the PSNI have to be human rights uh, compliant, but they don't meet the Article 2 because of their connection and overarching uh, involvement with the, the RUC, so therefore they can't do it, and they recognise that as well. The former chief constable himself, George Hamilton, is on record as saying the Stormont House needs implemented. Um, you know, John Boucher, who's looking at Operation Canova, and the other thing is that Stormont House is the way forward. All the senior police officers involved from Britain are in the north are recognising Stormont House is the way forward. And what you're doing is you're undermining confidence in a post-society, post-conflict society of human rights, the institutions of law and the institutions of democracy. You can't just walk into the society and determine we're shutting everything down and say it doesn't work and this is in your best mm. interest. When you yourself are the people that are stopping us from working for mm. your vested interest of protecting uh, state agents and state actors, protecting the British army from what it was up to through the force research and the collusion, okay. the in Dublin Monaghan, it's widespread and they're putting a lid on it to stop the merging. Because the judicial and legal process where families have the agency can unpack it and, and get to the truth, and they don't want that truth and where it leads to. A very different subject, uh, I suppose, but very much related in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, I, I think, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is the protocol. Because, again, the British government uh, appears uh, to be making a, a, a unilateral decision and going ahead on its own uh, and making changes uh, to an agreement uh, that it has with uh, the European Union, uh, an international agreement, uh, which undoubtedly will have an impact on the Brexit uh, agreement, uh, could result in a hard border on the island of Ireland. 
uh, and has to have consequences for the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and if you couple those two unilateral actions together, what impact uh, may it have overall on the Good Friday Agreement? Well, you see, we have a Tory government and people within the Tory cabinet that are hollowing out the Good Friday Agreement. They're providing a union of freedom under the guise of consent. They're hollowing out the Good Friday Agreement in terms of rights and entitlements, especially around this issue that we're talking about around systems and legacy. And so what you're seeing is the undermining and hollowing out of all those institutions and protections being afforded to citizens under the Good Friday Agreement. Um, you know, the protocol here is the protocol is agreed by the Alliance Party, the SDOP, you know, Sinn Féin, all the larger parties. The majority of people here voted in the North opposed the Brexit. The majority of people here support the protocol to kind of deal with the worst effects of Brexit in, 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 in the situation that's been foisted upon us. And in, in, in many contexts, we have a British government that doesn't honour its word. Uh, its word isn't worth anything as soon as the ink, on, on paper, the ink isn't even dry on agreements that have signed and on the paper when they're reneging and hollowing it out. These people just couldn't deal with them. Europe can't deal with them. You know, the Irish government's found it difficult. The parties in the North have found it difficult since Good Friday to have the full implementation of, of, of that agreement. And, and, and really, it's a battle a day. And we need to stand up as a society on this island, uh, across the islands of Ireland, Britain, Europe, and the United States, and stand up to them and say, this is not acceptable. They're putting everything at risk for selfish strategic interest. And at the, at the, at the end of the day, the unionists must trust them more than most people do. And, 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 and even they throw them under the bus in, in, in the broader context of things. They don't give a care about people on this island. They really don't. And they've demonstrated that through all their bad faith. All right, Mark, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme once again. That's Mark Thompson, who's uh, the CEO of Relatives for Justice. Let me bring you uh, a couple of comments uh, before the break. Peter in Dundalk says, how are they going to improve services in Navan if uh, there's a six to seven our long waiting list in Drogheda and you're going to combine them all. Well, uh, as I said uh, in our conversation earlier on, people who are going to Drogheda now uh, would probably go to Navan or the Loud County uh, and vice versa uh, or Blanchardstown uh, and people going in opposite directions so that instead of going for emergency care uh, to with, with a minor injury you'd go to a minor injury unit uh, Deirdre and Kells of course in touch saying it'll be a total disaster if uh, they uh, take away the emergency department in Navan thank you if you have been in touch with us today Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM Farmers who are members of uh, the IFA are protesting uh, this morning outside of Hilton Foods in uh, Drogheda. They've been there since 6 o'clock. Roy Galley is the chair of the IFA's Pig Committee. And on the line, good morning to you, Roy, and thanks uh, for joining us. Tell us what this is about. I'll tell you then, Michael, good morning to everybody as well. Um, We're in the unfortunate position at the moment where we've got the, the price of pigs uh, is now unable to pay for the feed that we feed our pigs. Now, the reasons for this stem back quite a long way. They go back to sort of two pandemics. Uh, one of them is, of course, our own of COVID-19, but then we also had one in the pig industry called African swine fever, uh, which impacted us very severely. On top of that, we had Brexit, which um, impacted labour force in factories, unable to kill pigs. And now the, the current one, of course, which has doubled our troubles, is the war in Ukraine. 
And the war in Ukraine has, has impacted us because mm. the Ukraine is a breadbasket of Europe and it produces a huge amount of barley, of wheat, of maize and soya, all of whom, which are constituents of the ration that we feed our pigs. And the there price. is a crisis, one that has been recognised by government, which has uh, decided to support you, uh, in part, Absolutely. you would say, uh, because uh, I think the uh, fund has gone to about 16 million or so, if I remember, but you're looking for more in the region of 100 million. But why are you outside of Hilton Foods today, and uh, what, what form is your protest taking? Yeah, so so what, what's happened is that we, we've, you know, we've got to realize where this money to recoup us is going to come from. So we've been to government and we've got government funding to help us stop gap. But that stop gap is for the, the market to, uh, to readjust and allow us to get the real money back from the marketplace that allows us to uh, operate with a margin. So we're outside Hilton Foods here to uh, get their support. Uh, because it is their support that we need uh, to get the retailers who are the ones who are the ultimate um, um, if you like, conduit to get from the consumer to ourselves. So there's a whole food chain. And unfortunately, this is, I know we're talking about food inflation all over the place. Mm. Unfortunately, the reality is that this is genuinely the case because we've had a 100% inflation in the cost of our food okay. uh, and, and for our pigs. And that's uh, we we're trying to recoup that, you see, the, from the marketplace. In the case of Hilton, you're talking about Tesco because uh, mm. they provide Tesco with uh, their meat. Uh, Precisely. Uh, are you disrupting business at Hilton Foods? No, no. We, we've decided to do the secondary processes, and we did four of them last week uh, together. Yes, we are disrupting um, business temporarily to allow us to go in for negotiations, um, to, to actually put a bit of force into the negotiations so that we do actually try and get a result at the end of it, because mm. we found that we've been plumossed by far too many people and fobbed off, if you like, and said, okay. well, look, it's not our responsibility. But this is lightning yeah. strike action. You know, it's kind of like it a, a dawn raid arriving at six o'clock without any prior notice. What, what has been the yeah. reaction of the company or the 380 the, people who work there? The people are all coming in and, and going out as normal, so we haven't disrupted any of the staff whatsoever. Uh, and we're about to go into a meeting with the management of the staff now because what we're trying to look for is... is our price to come up to two euros a kilo by the end of this month. Now, this won't even get us to break even point within pig production, but at least it's a start. So with their assistance, uh, we're hoping that they can uh, help us get the price of pigs up to two euros a kilo. And that would be, you know, from a primary processor level. And, and, you know, the whole food chain has to work together. And we're finding that the whole food chain is not working together. So we're here to try and uh, help them to help the food chain, if you like, work together to allow the money to come down to farmers. Uh, do you not need uh, a forum established, a bit like the beef forum, uh, a, a proper uh, constituted way of uh, negotiating with uh, each uh, tier of the industry from the farmer to the consumer and everything in between? I think that would be a lovely idea. Yes, that would be great because we really don't want to be out here doing what we're doing at the moment. It is definitely not the right way of doing things uh, to have to disrupt somebody else's business. Uh, unfortunately, when you do fall on deaf ears, um, because we have said this for the last three or four months, that if we don't get rises in, in the price of pigs, uh, that there will be no industry left because I've got farmers who are going bankrupt as I speak. I 
So we are in dire circumstances and empty shelves is what the result of people going out of business and you don't want empty shelves either. So we want to continue producing food for the supermarket shelves. And we're frightened that that may not be the case. uh, As you say, management has agreed to meet with you today, Roy. Uh, You could say desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, Whatever about uh, desperate measures, uh, they certainly are desperate times for pig farmers. Um, For sure. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. No no problem, Michael. Thank Thank you very much indeed. Roy Galley there with a number of members of the IFA outside of Hilton Foods in Drogheda. He is the chair of the IFA's Pigs Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to that historic phrase made by the UK's Foreign Minister Liz Truss yesterday. I am announcing our intention to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes in the protocol. To make changes without negotiation, unilateral action. They're going at it alone. They're on their own. They're running a solo gig on this. And it's going to cause problems. At least most people think it's going to cause problems. Won't it cost, cost a, a trade war? I, I don't think that is likely. But what we have to fix is the, the problems with the, the Northern Ireland uh, political situation where you can't get the executive up and running uh, right now, uh, in the past, we've done all sorts of things to, to fix that. We need to address the problems with the, uh, with the protocol. Um, what that actually involves is getting rid of some uh, relatively minor barriers to, to trade. And uh, I think there are good, commonsensical, pragmatic solutions. We need to work with our EU friends to, to achieve it. Boris Johnson doesn't think it'll cause a trade war, but how can the Prime Minister justify doing this when it's an agreement that he signed up to himself? I think the, the, the prior, the higher uh, duty of the UK government is to, uh, in international law, is to the Good Friday uh, Agreement and the peace process. And I, that's the that's the the thing we have to uh, really look to. And uh, of necessity, we can make some changes, I think, to uh, the protocol, which is not the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's, I, you know, I, I agree, it's there in Article 13.8 that if things aren't working, uh, you can change it. Uh, plus, it makes it very clear on the face of the text that uh, you should ensure the uh, East-West trade and the integrity of the UK internal market. So let's fix it. Uh, we don't want to nix it, we want to fix it. All right, uh, that's a uh, colourful Boris Johnson. Let's uh, speak uh, to the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Once again, Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael, TD for Loud is on the line. Good morning to you, Fergus, and thank morning, you indeed. Uh, he doesn't uh, want to nix it, is it? He, what, what was it he said? I, c- I think what he's doing is, is he's destroying uh, the good relationship that has existed between Britain and Ireland and indeed he's aggravating the relationship between obviously nationalists and unionists and you know people who choose neither identity in the north and he's also clearly looking for a, a punch up with the European Union. Um, is he going to get one? Well, I, I think what we have to do is to step back one bit from this and the legislation will take, I believe, at least a year to go through the British House of Parliament. But it is clearly a significant intervention and an unhelpful and an unnecessary one. We all know, Michael, that he signed up to this agreement. Yeah. Uh, he got Brexit done. He won the general election and all of that. And he can't renege on an international agreement because it will impact on the British, uh, you know, the view that other countries 
countries will have under British administration and international agreements. It'll create a lot of stress. And it's not, if he's doing it, as is often said, for, um, you know, to, to keep Geoffrey Donaldson happy. Donaldson has said, notwithstanding what the, what the Prime Minister in England said yesterday, that he would only, I think, quote unquote, will graduate, he'll have a graduated response in the Assembly, which means there will be no, there will be no first and deputy first minister. There will be no ministers acting in Northern Ireland. So it's really, it's really a disgraceful situation, particularly after such a recent election, which has a historic outcome that for the first time, you know, that there is a nationalist uh, entitlement to the first ministry. And that's, you know, that that is a fact. And, you know, the unionists have to accept that and, and the British government have to accept it too. So I think the key point that uh, Minister Coveney was making yesterday was that is to put aside the megaphones and get talking. Um, he spoke to Secretary Trust yesterday and uh, obviously clearly the British government are very much aware of the role that the Southern government wants to play in all of these issues. As the Taoiseach has said, landing zones are mm. available. They've been identified. You know, let's, 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 let's work it out because if we don't, mm. it will it'll be disastrous for everybody in my view. And if you had these green channels and red channels which they seem to be talking about, sure. would that be an acceptable way of mixing it rather than mixing it? Well, I mean, if it means that you identify more clearly, and there is no doubt about it, that there, that there are views, that there are, and indeed in Europe, and I'm sure in the Irish government as well, that we can, we can fix the issues without having to legislate in the British Parliament, uh, you know, to cause division on them. I think uh, the key thing is, you know, a green channel means that it's it's not going to conflict, you know, with the single market. I'm happy with that, of course I am. But how do you how do you how do you police it? Yeah. You know, you can't have goods coming in through a green channel yeah. that are going to breach, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the integrity of the single market. But what you do is, like anybody else, you sit down, you work well how can we do it now they've worked it out already in terms of medicines and so on uh, you know it's, it's called common sense yeah. it's called well, common sense well and, I, I, yeah. I imagine if there is a way of agreeing it it's we not, should agree it yeah well if, yeah but I, I imagine if there's a way of agreeing it you shouldn't be asked to agree it looking down the barrel of a gun Absolutely. But that's why that's why this legislation is, is a hostile act, really, because it's unnecessary. And it's, it's breaking, first of all, the Minister, sorry, Prime Minister Johnson's word and his signature that he put on, on the deal. He can't say he was acting under pressure. You know, th- there was no threats about it. Uh, mm. You know, and, and the other point is that it's distracting. And this is a European issue. Like we're, there's a, an appalling war going on in the Ukraine. And, you know, I think we all want, whether you're in Britain or Ireland or in Europe, we mm. want this war to end. It's distracting from that issue as well. All right. Some would yeah. argue that that's part of uh, the logic behind uh, the I've way that, that, that well. the British are negotiating, that they think that they'll have better support from Europe because of the stance that it's taking on Ukraine. Yes, well, that that is certainly said. I'm reading the Financial Times this morning. Uh, they're quoting sources in Europe saying that, you know, they're going to obviously, while they profoundly disagree with what's happening, it's not until and unless the legislation passes that the the trade war, which is a subject of, of huge commentary today, particularly in papers like the Irish Times, uh, would actually start. So there is, you know, there is room for manoeuvre. Mm. There is, there's room to get it right. We yeah, can't afford... We but can't 
that the British calculation yep. is that Europe will sell the Irish out, is it not? Yeah, well, I mean, it's very clear that they won't. It's, it's very clear that Sascovich, the European Commissioner, is very clear on it. And Europe has been exceptionally clear on all of this. You know, we are part of Europe and the single market cannot and will not be compromised. And, and, and we will work it out. But it's also affecting and it's also impacting hugely, Michael, as we, as we, as we all know, on, on the situation in Northern Ireland, where you have a clear, you have a clear majority in the Assembly who are happy with the process call wanted to proceed and uh, you you won't have an administration there and that only leads as we both know to more extreme views uh, pushing out the centre point of view and it's, it's, it's really bad and I mean the unionists have to accept that there is a very significant historic change now, it is there but it's also historic in that there's a huge number of mm. people who have now moved from being neither nationalist nor unionist into a middle ground now I believe in the United Ireland, as many people obviously in, in our country do, and our job now is to is to make an attractive offer that you that you know that that is based on the Good Friday Agreement that unionists and everybody else can sign up to, and that that's our political job. But you know, causing continued disunity and disruption. Yeah. In the north is not is not a good idea, and Britain also. Michael, I just read there, just before he came on the air, that uh, Britain is allegedly now going into a recession, so they can't afford mm. a trade war with prices going up and supplies being down. Well, Boris, Johnson, Boris Johnson doesn't seem to think there'll be a trade war. I, I take it you'd argue that point, uh, and that wouldn't be in anybody's interest, of course. The uh, introduction of this bill is one. Uh, of two very controversial uh, bills uh, that uh, will result in uh, the British taking unilateral action. I was speaking uh, with victims representative Mark Thompson of Relatives for Justice earlier on uh, about uh, the other one which will see this amnesty being offered uh, to people uh, and uh, he, he was looking at that in the context of the Good Friday Agreement along with the Northern Protocol and his argument was that there's a good portion of the members of uh, the Conservative Party that are trying to hollow out the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, is that a view that you subscribe to? Well, it seems very clear that Johnson is playing to the European group that he has within his party. Um, it, there is a significant interest Johnson has in, in his own MPs in the United Kingdom uh, that he's, you know, he's, he's, he's looking for support from them because his leadership is under threat. Um, and the point is that he, that's, that's clearly is what he is doing. Mm. Uh, but again, you know, there are other views in the Conservative Party which, which, you know, which are horrified of what he's doing in terms of breaking an international agreement. But like, that's British politics. That's his problem to deal with. But he's he's creating a huge problem on this island, and indeed a huge problem, you know, in, in our relationships between Britain and Ireland, which are you know which are moving into an all-time low. Okay, and I think that's hugely important that that we would do it, make every effort to restore the excellent relationships we have had in the past, and we need into the future with our nearest neighbour. Okay, but I, I spoke to you the last time about Amnesty's uh, concern about the Human Rights Act and Relatives for Justice have a. a similar concern. They say that uh, if uh, you breach the Stormont House Agreement, uh, which obviously this bill will uh, do, well then you're also uh, venturing into very dangerous ground because you're stopping inquests, stopping uh, the Ombudsman from uh, investigating, stopping investigations generally, and as a result of that you're breaching the Human Rights Act and you're undermining the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, do you believe that that is the case? 
It is the case. There's no doubt about it. The Stormont House Agreement, which was signed, excuse me, in in 2014, was very clear. Victims were first and centre in all of that. Now it looks like the perpetrators of these evil acts are going to be front and centre because they may not face prosecution if they if mm. they cooperate with this tribunal that the commission that they're mm. setting up. I'm not sure that the uh, Irish government can do anything about the British acting alone. Um, how is your committee uh, going to respond to it? Well, we'll have our meeting. We have a meeting uh, tomorrow, and obviously, clearly, we have representatives of all parties except unionists. We have, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we, we, we we have Sinn Féin, uh, we have Alliance, we have Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael Labour, and so on. So I, I'd say there'll be unanimity in relation to into what you know what our views will be. But I can't predict what they're going to say tomorrow. But clearly, this is a huge issue for us, and clearly, we we you know we have been in communication with the Secretary of State in Northern Ireland. And we will continue, obviously, to make our representations there. Yeah. And uh, I think we hope to go to on a visit to Stormont shortly as well okay. uh, as, as a committee, just just to make sure that our point of view is clear and, and known. It really is a shame that the unionists uh, won't uh, appear before yeah. your committee, but I, I think they'd oppose this amnesty as much as anybody else, perhaps for different reasons, reasons, uh, but uh, yes. as much as yeah. anybody else. Fergus, thank you indeed for joining well, us. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Uh, that's Fergus O'Dowd, who's uh, the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. He's a Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've had to show great resilience over the last couple of years, but it's been tested certainly in the last year and the annual report from the Ombudsman for Children is titled Resilience Tested, the Ombudsman for Children's Office Annual Report 2021. Let's hear a little bit about what's contained in it. Nuala Ward is Head of Complaints and Investigations with the Ombudsman for Children. And a very good morning to Nuala and thank you indeed for joining us. You've obviously had a very busy year with a 79% increase in complaints to your office. Okay, thank you very much, Michael, for having me on. Yes, you're right, 2021 was a very, very busy year with over 2,000 complaints and it's the highest number ever received by the office since it opened in 2014. But in fairness, I suppose it reflects the unpredictable year we all lived through in 2021 and over 900 of the complaints were on matters related to COVID. So people were contacting us about a range of issues about school closures, face masks on children and items like that. Um, So we're not a public health advisory body. But we are a children's rights institution, so our advice throughout the government has been consistent so that any restrictions on children should be proportionate, reasonable and for the minimum time possible. Indeed, uh, and uh, COVID tested us in many ways, as you say, but there's uh, a lot of uh, complaints uh, that have come uh, to your office over the course of uh, the last year uh, that are age-old problems or related to age-old problems for that matter, accommodation, education and indeed children's mental, mental health. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so it wasn't all about COVID. So, for example, we did receive a, a highest number of complaints again about education. And while, of course, a number of them were related to COVID because a lot of the government decisions uh, impacted on schools. But we again had a high number of complaints about bullying in schools. So this is an issue that we face year on year in. So around 10% of our complaints about schools are about bullying. And we hear firsthand the impact that has on children 
on families and on the school community. So we really want to see change in relation to how we prevent bullying and deal with bullying when it happens. So we're delighted, you may be aware, the Department of Education is setting up a big committee and we're going to be really striding on that to make sure any new action plan to address bullying is child-focused and very much focused on the rights of children. So that is one common issue that comes up year on year for us, Michael. What about housing and uh, the way Mm. this state has been failing so many people, but particularly children who are innocent in all of this for more than a decade? Yeah, absolutely. You may see in one of our in our report we deal with a lot of cases in relation to housing and particularly children living who are children who are homeless living with their families. So they're living in hotels, they're living in family hubs. And you know we all know the horrific impact childhood homelessness has on children. So we very much when we get uh, uh, complaints such as that, we move quickly. We try to get to the local authority to see if there's anything that can be done. Of course, we can't magic up a house for people. It's just not possible. But we try to make sure that they're on the correct waiting list, that everything has been administered correctly, that if they need medical priority, that's been done. But, you know, it's how it does have such a devastating impact on children. All right. Uh, tell me about Anne and the fight that she had to get therapeutic services uh, for three children uh, that she had fostered. Yeah, so what, what people may not be aware, what we're very grateful for is that we have, it's not just parents or grannies or aunts and uncles that come to make complaints on behalf of children. We also have some very strong advocates and as you can see in, in this year's annual report we've got two complaints from foster carers and one is about a foster carer who was so deeply upset that she couldn't get the supports that um, the children that were placed in her, her care and she could see that they needed them. So what this is about basically is as you know Children suffer trauma, and when children suffer trauma, it can have very serious lifelong implications. So for children in care, a lot of the times, the first time they feel safe is when they're placed in the foster care home or for the residential centre. And you know, if you have to feel safe to be able to talk about the bad things that might have happened to you when you were little. So it was really, really important that as children talk and disclose and maybe tell a little bit more about what happened to them, that they, uh, there is a service that they can access quickly to help them deal with that trauma. And that was wasn't in place and it's not in place and while we do know that all the agencies do want to do better for children in care so that they get those services more needs to be done and we're going to be pursuing that issue with all the relevant bodies and with the department. Right and these uh, children obviously suffered uh, very traumatic services and were very disturbed uh, and uh, the girl I think was seen by CAMS the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service Uh, which has been the subject of much criticism and concern. Uh, And some of the behaviours that they displayed were very disturbing uh, and probably frightening for the family that were caring for them, uh, not just for themselves, but for the children, probably more so. Uh, When I I read stories like uh, this one, Nuala, I sometimes wonder, and it's not just to do with... um, uh, children in situations like this, there's a, a many different uh, circumstances. I wonder, what was the children's rights referendum all about? Yeah, so what what changed? Yeah. I would heard, yeah, what's yeah. changed yeah. for children? Yeah, no, and it's all about, that was about highlighting and protecting their rights and making sure that their rights are being heard. And that is a key message uh, that the Ombudsman, Dr Niall Muldoon, has been given yesterday and throughout, is that we must we must become more child-centred in our government decisions, in our investment in children, in every part of any decision that is made going to impact on children. We have to focus on the rights of children, or otherwise they're going to fall through the cracks. And that's, you know, you, you know, I'm sure every 
everyone's listening knows that if you get the right intervention at the right time for children, it will help them all the way into their adulthood to become their, the potential that they have will be unlocked. But they have to get the right service at the right time. Mm. OK, we leave there for the moment, Nuala. Thank you indeed. Thank, thank you very much, Michael. Bye-bye. That's bye. Nuala Ward, who's Head of uh, Complaints and Investigations with uh, the Ombudsman for Children's Office. Uh, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, one, uh, I know this is going to sound odd, but one is a, a photograph. And uh, thank you to the person who sent the photograph. It's actually upsetting uh, because uh, I think it's probably true. It's a photograph of uh, this person's dinner last night and there's a message with it and it says, my dinner last night, peas on toast. Honestly, I've no money, but it was tasty. Thank you indeed. I wish it wasn't so for you, but uh, thank you for sharing that with us uh, and uh, for sending your WhatsApp message uh, to us. Uh, as I say, not not what you'd want in a very, very rich country. Uh, we'd uh, John Navin, uh, who says uh, that there's an awful lot of uh, disrespect uh, for the Russian ambassador in uh, this country. The government and the media uh, have shown disrespect to the ambassador. Uh, their behaviour is a disgrace from a supposedly neutral country. Neutral, uh, my foot, uh, a country that allows American troops to use Shannon on their way to devastate Iraq. Uh, that's uh, John in Navin. Uh, another text to us uh, comes from Eamon. And thank you for your message to the programme as well, Eamon. Eamon says, he can't understand that they're building a new hospital which costs millions, or a billion, and can't put euros into Navin. It baffles me, he says. Thank you for that, Eamon. Uh, we'd Liz in Drogheda in touch, who says, I don't know much a, a, about Navin Hospital because I, I live in Drogheda, but I, I do know that I've been to the Lourdes, uh, to the emergency department there a number of times, and I was all, it was always extremely busy and very long waiting times. I don't know how it's going to cope if it'll have to take more patients from the Navin area. The poor staff there are absolutely run off their feet. There doesn't seem to be enough staff working at times to cope with the demand. Will they be putting on extra resources extending the current emergency department, she asks. Well, thank you indeed uh, for that. I suppose that's exactly the type of question that Helen McEntee uh, once answered. Uh, the Minister saying as much earlier on in the programme and indeed some other local TDs uh, for that matter. Uh, it's always going to be a contentious issue, no doubt. But thank you if you have been sharing your thoughts with us uh, about the hospital in Navin or any other matter for that matter this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, let's talk uh, about pay. It seems appropriate after that photograph of someone's dinner. Peas on toast. Very disturbing. Um, But uh, as I say, let's talk about pay because uh, there's a lot of people who are working uh, as well as those who are not working who are finding it hard to make ends meet. The Labour Party says it is in line with uh, the trade union stance that pay increases should be in line with inflation. Let's speak uh, to Labour's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Loud and Eastmead. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining. Um, without being smart, when you say that pay increases should be in line with inflation, what does that mean? Uh, because it's 7% at the moment, isn't it? But it could go a whole lot higher. It could, yeah. And in some cases, um, Michael, we, we believe that um, pay rises that workers are entitled to expect in certain sectors of the economy should exceed uh, the rate of inflation because at the moment, uh, inflation is running uh, at 7% uh, compared to this time 
last year. Um, it's having a particularly acute impact on people who are on low incomes, on people who are on fixed incomes. So in other words, those who may depend on the national minimum wage or earning under uh, the hourly rate of the living wage at 12.90 an hour. And it's also really badly impacting on those who are on fixed incomes who are dependent uh, on uh, social welfare as their only income. Because we remember from the budget last year that um, social income core rates only went up by about uh, 2 plus percent. And when inflation is going up by 7 percent uh, and food prices up by 3.5 percent, energy prices doubling, or sorry, going up yeah. by 50 percent over the last year, then, you know, your euro is not stretching as far as, as, as it used to. So part of the solution here, uh, in our opinion, uh, is uh, the idea that uh, we uh, should trade union shouldn't be negotiating pay rises at least in line with inflation to make sure that the euro in your pocket uh, goes as far as it did last year and insulate you from those uh, rising uh, costs but also there's a historic issue here Michael because wages actually have been relatively stagnant in this country over the last uh, few years so there's been no this inflation. is not a new call from yeah, the like, but there's been no inflation yeah there's, well there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's been low inflation so there hasn't been the kinds yeah. of demands that you might expect from workers for kinds of pay rises and the kind of demands that mm. we're seeing now because inflation has been um, or the, sorry in, interest rates for example have been mm. low inflation has been relatively low I think, there were, times, uh, been, I think there were times over the last decade where there was negative inflation uh, and it's been, right. it's been pretty flat uh, as indeed have uh, pay claims uh, but uh, when you talk uh, about the euro in your pocket stretching uh, and getting as much for you now as it did a year ago because already it isn't uh, w- w- what does that mean i was talking to paul merryman of ask paul yesterday uh, about the claims the unions are, are, are making and interesting in the context of the photograph that was sent to be somebody's dinner because they didn't have any money peas on toast last night uh, which is dreadful but paul merryman was saying well look you know this isn't just uh, exclusive uh, to workers or people who are trying to repay their mortgages as the case may be and that could get a whole lot worse uh, the employers are also have to pay out more uh, in energy costs and fuel and everything else then if wages go up all of that's going to have to come from somewhere it's going to come from the consumer and it'll mean that the price of peas will go up yeah well the, the, you know, inflation and how the cost of living works is, is, is very complicated uh, and uh, if you actually make an intervention in one part of the economy it can have a, a knock-on effect because it's not going to affect for employers not going to affect for everybody uh, and sometimes what you see uh, when uh, w- wages go up is particularly in the context of the kind of inflation that we're experiencing at the moment when wages kind of chase inflation you kind of have what's called a, a wage inflation spiral so and that's not necessarily something that anybody mm. wants to get into but i will say this um this is an historic issue, Michael. Going back, in fact, to the 1970s and into the 1980s, when you know we did experience uh, very high rises in the cost of living over uh, periods of time, and people in low and middle incomes felt very difficult. Uh, rising interest rates, we're going to experience that again over the next uh, while. Uh, there were very, very um, you know severe uh, problems uh, in uh, our economy, and there was a different kind of economic model in, in, in operation then. And, and Ireland as an economy was not as productive. Now, if you look at productivity, there's no harm in increasing wages when productivity is rising. And productivity is rising. We clap ourselves on the back all of the time. And the government will say every year when the World Bank uh, data comes out that Ireland is the most productive, Irish workers are the most productive uh, workers in the world. The problem is that wages have become stagnant. So what happens when productivity goes up and wages are stagnant? It's actually employers and those mm. who own wealth who are getting wealthier and 
the situation for workers just remains stagnant. And that's not a good thing for our society and not a good thing for our economy. So there's, I think, probably three or four different scenarios at play at the moment. We have wage rises in professional services, up to about 25%, would you believe, uh, this year. And uh, recruitment firms, uh, their surveys earlier on this year said that could very well be for, you know, you know, bankers and uh, lawyers working in the IFSC and so on could see because of a very tight labour market and in a bid to retain those staff, mm. those skilled staff, pay increases of 10 to 25%. Mm. Then we've got people in the middle who are represented by trade unions who may see through negotiated settlements uh, pay increases of 25 to 5.5%. Then we've got people who are working in the hospitality sector and retail who are dependent actually on, uh, and their wages may be linked to the minimum wage, in other words, you might be on the minimum wage or you might be on a rate of pay that's analogous to the minimum mm. wage. So if the minimum wage rises, your pay goes up maybe by 50 cent. Uh, they are the people who depend, for example, on the low pay commission saying, look, we believe that your wages should go up this year. And then they're dependent on a government recommendation to make that happen. So there's a number of ways that this can happen. But a core part of dealing with the situation we have at the moment should be pay rises. Some of them could be negotiated by trade unions. Others will be dependent on uh, the minimum wage going up. We believe it should go up mm. by at least a euro this year. But also, as well, uh, there are other ways of doing this because the economists are telling us, Central Bank, ESRI, and others, that this is a probably a temporary phenomenon, but a phenomenon that will last for the next year or two. There are ways that employers can deal with this, for example, through bonus payments. The, 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 through, the war uh, yeah. is the big uh, thing that brings uncertainty to, to that. Uh, but. Uh, you're talking about the perfect storm here, aren't you? Uh, because mm. if you're talking about professionals who are getting pay increases of uh, 25%, obviously there's people who get nothing in the way of an increase or 1% or 2%. Uh, and uh, then you may have uh, the trade unions looking for increases in line with uh, inflation at 8%. Inflation may soar even higher. Uh, and you're talking about the recipe for widening the gap, aren't you, between those who have and those who have not. Uh, and then add into the equation the mortgage interest rates. Uh, and if they reach 8%, let's say, which apparently uh, seems very possible at this stage, uh, you really are talking about people being in a very difficult place. Well, we are. It, it, it is a perfect storm. There are things that government can do that, that, they, that they ought to do that they haven't done uh, to date. Uh, there's more space, for example, for government to address issues around consumption tax, VAT, for example, because uh, we know that people who are low and middle incomes uh, pay more of their income in VAT on, on, on the basics that we, we, all, we all depend on. Uh, the idea as well that the only intervention that government can make uh, to address you know, rising energy costs is to actually give everybody, regardless of your income, €200 Euro off your bill is absolutely bananas and is bad economics. It's actually inflationary, Michael, because what you're doing there, rather than actually providing more to those who need the most support, what you're doing is giving €200 Euro to individuals and families across the country mm. who don't need it. And what happens then is they spend it in the economy and that just creates an inf- a kind of inflationary spiral that Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar are warned the Labour Party about when we're demanding pay rises for low and middle income workers. Uh, what they need to do as well is manage uh, costs. We, we, we have... They tell us all of the time that we have this you know, second highest minimum wage uh, in, uh, in in the European Union. But what they fail to tell us then is that, in fact, when you factor in the cost of living, it's actually only uh, the uh, eighth highest. And we know that Ireland is a very, very difficult place to live. It's very difficult to afford to go to the doctor. There are education costs in terms of you know, going back to school. 
uh, those costs aren't uh, readily met or aren't supported by the state for too many families. So if we introduce things like free school books, if we ban voluntary contributions in schools and support schools better through the you know uh, yeah. uh, resources that we have at central government level, then we could make life much easier uh, for uh, people who work hard for a living and are finding it really, really uh, difficult to make ends meet at the moment. So there's lots of ways government can manage this, uh, but we believe that part of the solution to this is pay rises that weren't just necessary now, Michael, but because, you know, uh, there's been stagnant wage uh, wage situation for lots of people in low and middle, middle income positions over the last few years, it is time for a pay rise in any case to, okay. to reward workers for the contribution they're making to yeah. what is a very successful economy, as evidenced by the yeah. recent exchequer figures, where corporation taxes performing uh, uh, heroically, VAT is up, um, you know, which will happen. Uh, in situations like this. There there are things uh, that are out of our control, like the war, like the interest rate situation, because that's based on the ECB rate, uh, and it seems people are very aware of it, according to the Irish Independent today. There's a surge in people who are looking to fix uh, their mortgages, and it would seem that people would be well advised to do that. But uh, when we get into this situation, as you, uh, I'm sure, very well remember of inflation, you go into recession, uh, and some things become uh, predictable uh, and uh, you end up with uh, industrial disputes one after the other I think it is what history would teach us uh, and we could be very well looking at a, a winter of uh, discontent we already have a, an industrial dispute uh, underway today uh, with uh, strike action being taken by the Medical Laboratory Scientists Association which uh, has leading to great disruption in hospitals today it's a one day action but it could be a two day action and it could next week and it could escalate now I know that you raised this in the doll yesterday with the Taoiseach. I would just hear a little bit uh, from Michal Martin, what he had to say about this dispute yesterday. The, the important point here is the Public Service Agreement Group, comprised of union and civil service representatives with an independent chair, met on May the 11th to consider this matter. They, they recommended that the matter be immediately referred to the WRC and that industrial peace be maintained in the meantime. Just for, while the MLSA have agreed to engage at the WRC, they have not agreed to lift their strike action which is in breach of, of building momentum, I would appreciate and would ask again that the strike action will be lifted and to allow Thank the process to yes. take its course. Why, why is it that they're on strike? Why are they not in the WRC if they agree to go? Uh, they were in the WRC um, yesterday uh, for a very lengthy uh, period of time. Um, I was actually uh, at the picket line in uh, Our Lady Lord's Hospital um, earlier on today expressing my support and solidarity for the uh, local medical scientists. This is a, a long-running issue in relation to pay disparity, developing mm. pay parity with um, with uh, uh, equivalent uh, grades in, in the health service. Uh, this actually, this issue, in fact, was 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 effectively resolved 20 years ago, uh, but there's been a degree of foot-dragging um, uh, and some complications that have arisen uh, in relation to finally putting this uh, really kind of weeping sore that's bedeviled the health service uh, to bed uh, over the last few years. I know that the WRC themse- uh, themselves uh, engaged uh, and used their good offices to try to uh, address these points and to get a resolution with the HSE, Department of Health and uh, the MLSA. As I said yesterday, they were actually, as, as the teacher was responding to me, they were actually in the WRC uh, trying to get a resolution to this dispute. They made proposals actually a number of weeks ago at the WRC again uh, that, in my view, uh, could have got considerable traction, uh, with, and, I, and I believe did, with the HSC and the Department of Health. But the stumbling block here is the dead hand of the Department of Public Expenditure uh, and uh, Reform. For a very small amount of money, they could address this pay parity issue, uh, and they could also uh, ensure that there's a 
decent career structure and career progression for uh, young uh, graduates who, who want to work in the HSC system, the public voluntary hospital mm-hmm. system, uh, to do the work that they were trained to do. And it's a very competitive environment at the moment. I mean, if you train as a medical scientist, you've got options to, you know, maybe go into the very successful pharma industry in this country, uh, into maybe uh, academia and so on. Oh. Oh, I think that line is dropped. I don't know whether to talk or stop talking because I can hear uh, a a broken up line. Yeah, I'm sorry your line broke up on us there. If I could just finish very, very briefly with one quick and important question, a separate issue. The Rural Independent Group, if they're successful in forcing a vote on the National Maternity Hospital today, it will apparently result in Nasser Hurricane and possibly Patrick Costello, two Green Party TDs, losing the whip. They need four TDs to support uh, the move to get a, a vote, will the Labour Party be supporting them? Will we be supporting the Royal Independent Group? Yeah, to force a vote on the uh, Sinn Féin motion. Look, we, we, we haven't uh, considered this, and, and really this is a matter for uh, deputies uh, Horrigan uh, and Costello, who uh, are, are, are thankfully having uh, great difficulty in supporting the government's position. The Labour Party's position on the National uh, Maternity Hospital is very clear. Uh, it's been very mm-hmm. clear uh, during our, our period in government, very clear since 2017 when we mm-hmm. first called sure. for a compulsory purchase order. On the site, this should be a public hospital uh, built on public land, and there should not be any okay. sense that uh, but- there's, you know, any kind of religious order involved in this. Or, no, so, I, I mean, yeah, this yeah, is, I'm not dismissing that. Well, okay, yeah, well, perhaps so. So, so you won't yeah, be supporting yeah. the uh, move to force a vote? Well, well, you know, we, we, we generally disagree uh, on many issues with uh, the Royal Independent Group. I don't believe that the Royal Independent Group themselves are that interested uh, on what happens with the National Maternity Hospital. It's simply the kind of stunt that we kind of expect okay. from uh, this group who literally contribute really to public discourse in this country. And, um, you know, I'd be more interested in them supporting the idea of compulsory board disorder on the site, which I don't believe they, they, they support. No, no, it's just no, designed really no. to embarrass a, a, a two Green Party TDs yep. who are having genuine issues with this government. Decision. Okay, that seems to be the case. All right. Thank you indeed. I have to leave it there. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. Thanks very much. That's Labour Party uh, TD for Loud and East Me. The Jed Nash, who's his party spokesperson on finance. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're having trouble trouble with uh, your kids, uh, you may be interested in our next item. I suppose some people would say, who doesn't have uh, trouble with their kids? Uh, but if, if you're looking for advice, if you're having trouble with your kids, there's a fantastic service uh, available to you called Parent Line, which opens at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's open then till 9 o'clock in the evening, Monday to Thursday, and 4 o'clock on a Friday. It's a Dublin number, 8733500. We'll repeat it at the end. But let's speak to to Silda Langford, who's the co-founder of ParentLine. And a very good morning to you, Silda, and thank you indeed for joining us. I, I take it uh, there's many people listening to us uh, who would have called ParentLine over the years uh, because you established 40 years ago on the 19th of May uh, 1982, which is 40 years ago, as I say, tomorrow. That's right, Michael, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. Um, it's like a trip down memory lane because 40 years is a long time. And uh, the current um, volunteers in the organization, when they decided to celebrate the anniversary, they contacted, they tried to find some of the uh, founders of the organization and um, they managed to find four of us. So um, it's really 
amazing to think that something that you you try to start to support parents 40 years ago is alive and well and still providing a service for parents. Mm. Yeah, we thought we'd do it all 40 years ago, but looking back, uh, they seem like innocent times, did they not? Um, back then, um, I was a social worker in the Old Eastern Health Board and I worked in County Wicklow and there were only six of us all together working in the community. And if you fast forward to today, you'll find that there's probably 70 or 80 people working in the same area. And therefore, we were also the first generation of social workers to be employed by the state. Mm. And um, our job basically was to uh, work with children at risk. And we often then found ourselves having to take a child into care and have to go to court. And it was very traumatic and very difficult. And we were very conscious that parents very often doing their best um, once they were involved with us and we were sort of seen as not on their side. And we really wanted to have some sort of a service that a parent could approach anonymously and seek help and talk through their problems. And that was why we we didn't want another parallel social work organisation. We wanted... Um, an organisation of volunteers who, through living life themselves as parents and having overcome challenges, Mm. that they would get trained up and they would be supervised and they would be at the other end of a phone. So our vision was a bit like the Samaritans. You all know what the Samaritans is like. Mm. But we wanted this for parents so that if I'm, say, I had to come home from hospital after having a baby and you know the way we all think everything is going to be rosy and it turns out not to be rosy, and you, you're afraid to admit that you're not coping. We wanted a telephone line with somebody at the end of it that you could phone and just say, I'm not coping. I don't know why. Can I just talk to you? So it was as simple as that. It was a very simple formula. Mm. But it wasn't all that easy to set it up because we had no money and we had to fundraise and we had to seek volunteers and we had to interview the volunteers. And what the, the main memory I have was the generosity and the calibre of the people that came forward and offered their service. And I never came across such a bunch of people that were so reliable and nobody ever gave an excuse for not turning up for duty. Nobody ever gave an excuse for not being available for training. And in a sense, for those of us who were working in this very difficult area, it also gave us a boost Mm. that out there you had all these people in the community who were willing to give up their time on a voluntary basis And that has been going on now for 40 years. So we thought it was just marvellous that they decided to celebrate the 40 years. Absolutely. Uh, And the country has changed dramatically in uh, the 40 years. The services uh, and complaints and issues uh, that people bring to Parent Line uh, has changed uh, along with that. Uh, And uh, I was reading in the Irish Times about what is being described as the unspoken side of uh, domestic violence that many parents have to deal with now, which is child to parent violence. Uh, And there's a a non-violent resistance programme that has been developed in relation to this. So common is the problem. That's right. Um, When we started off, it would be more of kids being out at night and parents not able to get them in. And um, nowadays, when you talk to the volunteers, uh, 29 of them have been trained in the non-violent resistance. And the purpose of it is, is to help parents who are feeling victims of their children almost, to help them stop recurring patterns of behaviour escalating into violence. And 
uh, they get weekly one-on-one, one-hour remote session over eight weeks. And the purpose of it is to help the parents to stop feeling powerless, to stop stuff happening. Because you can imagine yourself as a parent if you find yourself afraid of your child. It's a very sense of powerlessness in that. And Parentline set about developing this service so that parents could take back some of the power. And it's it's difficult to talk about Mm. to your family, say, if you're afraid of your child, or it's difficult to talk to your friend because people would more likely say, well, cop yourself on. Mm. So... They have found that in recent times that is that is a really prevalent problem. Mm. Whereas when we started in the early days, it would be very few problems of that nature. Okay, it seems like a, a good time to give out uh, the parent line number uh, again, which is oh one eight seven three three five hundred. If people want advice on that or other issues with their children, that's oh one eight seven double three. 500. Thank you for speaking to us today, Silda. Silda Langford, co-founder of Parentline, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 